And I just want to go ahead and get us started into our subject matter today for this episode, Omaha. You know, in Ephesians 4.15, the Apostle Paul says that we are to speak the truth in love, right? And uh, that's what we're going to try to endeavor to do today. That's what we're going to try to do today as we try to do in each and every episode of the Just Thinking Podcast is to speak the truth in love. But having said that, I'm not naive to the fact that regardless of how loving you and I may endeavor to be, Omaha, in conveying biblical truth about the issue we'll be discussing today, there are going to be those who fancy themselves as members of what I call the, quote, tone police, unquote. Now, the tone police, if you're not familiar with that term, the tone police are people who will hear this episode and notwithstanding the truth that we're presenting in it, they'll focus only on the inflection and tone of voice that we use as if tone were the ultimate arbiter of what is true and loving. But I have something to say to the tone police out there, okay? I don't wanna get this out of the way, right off the top. If your purpose in listening to this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast is to merely audit us for tone, this probably is not the episode for you to listen to. In fact, my advice to you is to press the stop button right now. Go ahead and press the stop button. If you're a member of the Tone Police, go ahead and press the stop button because you're going to be writing a lot of Tone Police citations if you continue to listen to this episode over the next couple hours. You're going to be writing us a lot of tickets, okay? Right. So I just want to remind you guys that the same Apostle Paul who said in Ephesians 4.15 that we're to speak the truth in love also said in chapter 5, verse 11 of that same epistle in Ephesians, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. That's Ephesians 5.11. So Omaha, I just wanted to offer that up as a public service announcement, if you will, to the tone police out there who might be listening to this episode before we begin. Any thoughts from Absolutely. you, bro? No, I think it was smart to, to quote from Ephesians 4.15 and unpack that. Sadly and unfortunately, many connect biblical love with sentimentality. And so when they're when they're talking about tone, they're looking for a tone that provides that subjective emotion. Right. Biblical right. love, on the other hand, it, it it acts in a manner that looks out for others above one's uh, above one's self-interest. Therefore, mm-hmm. even even as we warn others by saying things that are unpopular, we do indeed demonstrate what Paul is talking about in Ephesians four. 17 when he says to speak the truth in love our concern is not for acceptance or mere sentimentality our concern is for those who desire to know what is true and so man i'm glad you put that announcement out there up front get that out of the way so we can go to work well let's go to work man let's go ahead and get started i want to begin our conversation on black lives matter question mark by reading from the black lives matters website which you can find at blacklivesmatter.com blacklivesmatter.com. I'm quoting verbatim from the Black Lives Matter website. Quote, hashtag Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer. Black Lives Matter Foundation, Inc. is a global organization in the U.S., U.K., and Canada whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. 
by combating and countering acts of violence, by combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives, unquote. That was a direct quote from the Black Lives Matter's website at blacklivesmatter.com. Now, notwithstanding the broader mission of the Black Lives Matter organization, which I just read from its own website and in its own words, what I don't want our listeners to miss at the outset of our discussion here, Omaha, is that the primary impetus, okay, the primary impetus, the fundamental motivating force, the core impulse for the founding of this organization in the first place was the dissatisfaction of its founders with the outcome, okay? The dissatisfaction of its founders with the outcome of the trial of Trayvon Martin's killer, namely George Zimmerman. Now, in other words, the founders of Black Lives Matter were displeased and indignant that George Zimmerman had been acquitted. In other words, that Zimmerman was found not guilty of the charges against him by a jury of his peers. Now, I want to read again that very first sentence from the section I read earlier from the Black Lives Matter website. Quote, Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer. Unquote. Now, the reason I read those words a second time, Omaha, is because intrinsic within them is a fundamental biblical principle that we as Christians would do well to consider, but which, to my knowledge anyway, has gone completely unaddressed in the years since the founding of the organization known as Black Lives Matter in 2013. Any thoughts from you, bro, before I continue on that train of thought? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, the motivation for Black Lives Matter's beginnings. I thought to remind our listeners of the timeline of events that led to this pivotal moment. Now, if we can rewind to 2013 and remember that Barack Obama was the president of the United States at the time. And during his time in office, Obama thought to usher in a a post-racial utopia. He actually spearheaded more racial division and animosity than any other president in recent memory. It began just a few short months after he entered office during his first term. Some may recall the beer summit when when Obama had claimed that the the beer summit that was necessary when Obama had claimed that police had, quote, acted stupidly during an arrest of the Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. by a white officer. Now, this statement would later be backtracked by Obama after getting the facts of the situation wrongly. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, This this, however, wouldn't be the last time that Obama assumed motive on the basis of ethnicity with regard to the police. By the time we get to the Trayvon Martin death, it's March of 2012 and Obama's at the peak of his reelection campaign. Now, this is a campaign against Mitt Romney where Obama was feeding the country a steady diet of, quote, if you don't vote for me, it's because you're racist. Right. Mm -hmm. It was it was it was March 23rd of 2012 when President Barack Obama, without all the facts of the case, stating his opinion regarding the Trayvon Martin case, famously said this, quote, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon, end quote. Mm -hmm. Now, overnight, 
after that comment, media coverage of the event would surpass the coverage of the presidential election as some news outlets began committing 50% of their airtime to discussing Trayvon Martin. Days after the president's comments, rallies began to take place in cities across the country. And on July 13th, after hearing all of the evidence in the Trayvon Martin case, the six-woman jury, including one minority, would find George Zimmerman not guilty. Now, here's what was interesting. They were given at the very last minute, this jury was given at the very last minute, the option of three choices. They could find Zimmerman guilty of second-degree murder, they could find him guilty of a lesser charge of manslaughter, or they could find him not guilty. So th- these were the three choices. The initial charge was actually a second-degree murder charge, but the judge mm-hmm. put in this lesser charge in an effort to see if there could, there could, they could win a conviction. And while, while at the end of the day no one knows how the fight between Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman began, all the forensic and witness testimony supported Zimmerman's story that Trayvon was on top of Zimmerman, wailing away, at which point George Zimmerman, fearing for his life, pulled out a gun and shot Trayvon Martin, killing him. I'll say this in, in, in close. Uh, the loss of human life is completely tragic, regardless of the circumstance by which it takes place. But, but equally tragic would be the adjudication of a case on the basis of either presidential politics and or sinful ethnic partiality. Mm. However, this, this is the basis for and the circumstances under which Black Lives Matter begins. And on July 13th, 2013, the acquittal of George Zimmerman happens. And on the 14th of 2013, July 2013, BLM co- co-founder Patrice Cullors repost that message about the acquittal in the now famous hashtag, hashtag Black Lives Matter. You know, Omaha, first of all, thanks for that background. I appreciate you bringing us some context around this, some much needed context, as a matter of fact. I was thinking, you know, how the Sixth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution states the following, okay? Quote, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused... Okay, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial, by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law and to be informed. Again, this is the accused. The accused has the right to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have a compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense, unquote. That is the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Now, I want to reiterate here that the Sixth Amendment declares that in all criminal prosecutions, all, including for the accused, whoever the accused might be, shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. Now, I need to point out here that the Sixth Amendment as well as the other nine amendments that comprise the Bill of Rights, 
applies equally and impartially to every citizen of the United States of America without regard to his or her ethnicity, sex, religion, or sociocultural background. Every person within the sound of my voice who is a citizen of the United States of America can rightfully avail themselves of all of the rights and protections afforded them under the Bill of Rights of the United States Constitution. Every citizen. Now that said, I would dare, I would dare say that there is not one person listening. There's not one person listening to me right now who were they to find themselves in the midst of a situation or circumstance such as would warrant a trial by jury, who would not immediately take advantage of the legal protections that are rightfully theirs under the Sixth Amendment. Not one person. Now, I say that because as it relates to an organization like Black Lives Matter, which, according to his own website, was founded solely on the grounds that George Zimmerman was acquitted by a jury of his peers, it behooves each of us to put ourselves in the place of George Zimmerman, or for that matter, in the place of any other person who has been accused of such serious offenses as Zimmerman was. Now, just to point back to something you said in your last commentary, Omaha, I don't say that in an attempt to defend George Zimmerman or conversely to minimize the fact that Trayvon Martin lost his life. I say that to point us, right? I say that to point us to the foundational issue of impartiality impartiality with regard to how we are to render judgments and draw conclusions in certain situations. Now, why is that important? Why do I say that impartiality is a foundational issue here? Well, the reason is because the biblical doctrine of impartiality is one of the most crucial yet most underappreciated and undervalued doctrines in the entirety of Scripture. I mean, when you consider that reality against the socio-political milieu in which we find ourselves today, not to mention the current ecclesiastical milieu, particularly as it relates to increasing numbers of professing evangelicals and evangelical churches aligning themselves with Black Lives Matter, not even being fully aware of what that organization actually stands for, it's vital that we understand and rightly apply what Scripture teaches and what God demands of us as believers with regard to being impartial in all our judgments. Now remember, remember the primary reason Black Lives Matter as an entity was begun in the first place is because its founders were angry over the outcome of a trial that was indisputably conducted in accordance with the rights that each of us have as a citizen of this country to due process of law under the United States Constitution, regardless of whether we are the accused or the accuser. Now, the founders of Black Lives Matter weren't indignant over any procedural, judicial, or constitutional violations in terms of how the trial of George Zimmerman was conducted. In other words, they had no objective reasons whatsoever apart from their own prejudicial biases and motives as a basis for their resentment and outrage over what transpired in that trial. Had they had any complaint on that basis, okay, had they had a complaint that something procedural, judicial, unconstitutional occurred, then their indignation would have been both understandable and warranted, but that was not the case. The founders of Black Lives Matter were simply indignant over the fact that a young black man had been killed by someone who was not black and that a jury had the temerity 
that a jury had the temerity to not render a guilty verdict on the same basis that the founders of Black Lives Matter desired a, a guilty verdict to be handed down, namely on the basis that Trayvon Martin was black and George Zimmerman wasn't. In other words, the founders of Black Lives Matter wanted the members of the jury in the Zimmerman trial to completely disregard the oath that each of them swore, which under Florida law reads, quote, to render a true verdict. Every juror under Florida law must recite this oath. Quote, render a true verdict according to the law and the evidence, unquote. But instead, the founders of Black Lives Matter want the jury to show, to show partiality against the defendant solely on the basis of Trayvon Martin's skin color. Now, I ask you, Omaha, who of us would want that from a jury had we been the one on trial? Had either of us been the one on trial, who in the world of us would want any, to know that any, of our, uh, the, any member of the jury in whose hands our fate rests was already partial against us? Now, of course, of course, now, given the reality that every juror is a sinner, okay, an oath of any kind carries significance and weight only insofar as the individual swearing to it intends in his or her heart to abide by the words contained in that oath. I mean, it's no different from a man and a woman who recite marriage vows to each other. The words themselves possess no inherent power to ensure that a husband remains faithful to his wife or conversely that a wife remains faithful to her husband. Ultimately, right, ultimately the words we speak the promises we make, the oaths that we take, all boil down to the intent of our heart to abide by the words of those promises, oaths, and vows. Now, I say that in light of such sobering verses as Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, which says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis 6, 5. When Peter and John encountered the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, verse 22, they said to the sorcerer, therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiving you. So again, I, I cite those two verses because it's the condition of our heart that makes our words effectual, not the words themselves. Thoughts on that, Omaha? Yeah, wow, you covered a lot of ground. I want to, I want to reiterate, man, something that I believe that you said that was incredibly important, which is the the issue of impartiality. Uh, you started by saying it, it's a key component of the Sixth Amendment, and and even anchored it more importantly as a biblical doctrine and and as the primary issue that we have to address. And th now, the genesis of this mo movement, the genesis of the movement of of Black Lives Matter, is steeped. Impartiality. It's the very thing, unfortunately, that Black Lives Matter claims that they're trying to fight against. But that's exactly what they're promoting. The, the BLM, quote, response, right? That's because that's what the issue was. They they wanted to respond to the mm -hmm. acquittal of Tra of the Trayvon mm -hmm. Martin case to the point you made earlier. It had nothing to do with a lack of evidence, it had nothing to do with invalid testimony, inaccurate eyewitness accounts or unsubstantiated facts. The, the BLM response was steeped in subjective, sinful, ethnic partiality. 
Mm-hmm. However, he, here's where my analysis, bro, might seem to go a little bit off the rails. Because here's where I would argue that the outcome of the Zimmerman case and other cases like them are exactly what these women from Black Lives Matter actually desire. What I mean is that these women, nor their cause, actually benefit from getting the, their stated desire outcome, the, the desired outcome of their rally cry that Black Lives Matter. There is no way to advance the Black Lives Matter cause if justice is ever to be served. Now, whoa, the whoa, advance, whoa, 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 yes, whoa, 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 whoa. I need some hammering <laughs> on this one. I need some hammering <laughs> on that point right there. That's a brilliant point. Brilliant point, yeah. Omaha. Would you mind, brother, please reiterating that point once more? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll start back and, and, and just kind of kind of walk through this. I, I, I want to argue this, that the outcome of the Zimmerman case and other cases like that are exactly what these women that, that have started this movement desire. What I mean is that these women, nor their cause, actually benefit from the stated desired outcome of their rally cry that Black Lives Matter. Wow. Wow. There is there is no way to advance the BLM cause if justice is ever to be served. The advance of the BM the, the advance of the BLM cause is only benefited by emotional responses devoid of facts. The, the BLM cause is only benefited by inciting violence. It's it, it's it's advanced by by increasing ethnic hatred and by establishing the permanent victimhood of those they claim to be helping. Now, furthermore, black lives have never mattered to black lives matter. Let me be clear. Black lives have never mattered to black lives matter. The organization Black Lives Matter uses the bodies of dead black men, primarily at the hands of white officers, to promote a modern day race hustle now they they do this to advance their own political power grab now here's what i mean let me let me make let me make this case here's what i mean we're, we're all familiar with the names george floyd ahmaud arbery uh, brianna taylor uh, tony mcdade robert fuller we're, we're familiar with these names elijah mcclain i could go on but but let's stop and ask a question since these lives matter to black lives matter Let's ask one question. How much money has gone to the families of those from Black Lives Matter? Now, Daryl, I search, I search far and wide, man, and I, truth be told, I can't find a dime, and I mean not one dime. Now, I would love mm-hmm. for someone to prove me wrong on this, and here's what I do know. I do know that Black Lives Matter has benefited from the deaths of each of the people that I've mentioned. In fact, Fred Fred Lucas, author of the book Tainted by Suspicion, The Secret Deals of Electoral Chaos, uh, The Electoral Chaos of Disputed Presidential Elections, he wrote an article that was carried by the Daily Caller. And Lucas cites 18 corporations, and he cites these based upon the corporations Mm-hmm. The, the, the corporations themselves, these are the corporations mm-hmm. said what themselves, the money they've given directly to, to the Black Lives Matter group. These corporations include DoorDash, $500,000, $500,000 by Deckers, $10 million over 10 years to 12 groups, including Black Lives Matter, $500,000 by Gatorade, $250,000 by Microsoft. 
$500,000 by Glossier Skincare, $500,000 by Airbnb, $350,000 by Unilever, $500,000 by Nabisco, $500,000 by Dropbox. Brother, I could go on and mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. and on. Now, you've got to ask yourself a question. If the black lives of those murdered actually mattered to Black Lives Matter, how are they caring for those black lives? Now, let, let me get let me get real for just a second, brother. We've been doing this show for two years. And mm -hmm. here's what I know. Here's what I know about you and me. I, I know that my life matters to you. There, there are many ways that I could mm -hmm. tell our audience that my life matters to you. For example, if I told you I had a financial situation uh, that, that wouldn't allow me to make ends meet, I know exactly what you would say to me before we ended the conversation. You would say to me, hey, hey, bro, let, let me ask you, is, is there anything you need from me? And I mean anything. I mean, we, we've had conversations along those lines about other issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Guess what? And I, I would know exactly what you meant. I, I would know that if something happened to me and to my family, you and your family would be there for me. And I know this because my life matters to you. Now, I haven't lost my life, nor has any of my loved ones' lives been lost. But if they had, if I or anyone in my family had lost their lives, I can guarantee you this, that those to whom my life matters would step up and do whatever was necessary to take care of any need or any mm -hmm. shortfall that my family and I would experience. Why? Because that's what it means for someone's life to matter. By that standard, how does how does Black Lives Matter stack up? Brother, I've done my research into the names of those who BLM claims that they're standing for. What I've found mm -hmm. is that those families that have been impacted most by the loss, they seem to be moving forward far from the oversight and care of the Black Lives Matter movement. For, for example, BLM is no longer seeking justice for Trayvon. You see, the BLM movement isn't interested in justice. Black Lives Matter only finds benefit in dead black bodies. Justice is irrelevant to advance their cause. I know we're going to go over a, lot, a great deal of ground to cover. And so I just want to be clear that the BLM movement is all about standing tall on the dead bodies of black men by white officers for the purpose of destroying America and replacing it with the rain and terror witnessed in video clips that headlines that headline the nightly news. Preach, bro. Preach. You know, at this point, Omaha, in the episode, in our conversation, someone listening to this might be asking themselves right about now, well, what does all this talk about impetus and motive and intent have to do with Black Lives Matter? Well, it has to do with it because, as I mentioned earlier, given the increasing numbers of professing Christians and Christian churches, ministries and organizations that are aligning themselves with Black Lives Matter, the organization, thinking mistakenly that it's all about a hashtag that promotes the universal worth and value of the, of the lives of black human beings, it's important to know not only that Black Lives Matter organization exists, but why Black Lives Matter, the organization exists. Now, we can rightfully dilute, deduce, I believe, from the aforementioned words that I quoted earlier from the Black Lives Matter's website, that if Trayvon Martin, okay, if Trayvon Martin had been any ethnicity other than black, you and I might not be having this conversation, Omaha. Right. And to further underscore, to further underscore the impetus upon which that organization was founded, 
I will again quote from the Black Lives Matter website in their own words, quote, enraged by the death of Trayvon Martin and the subsequent acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman, and inspired by the 31-day takeover of the Florida State Capitol by Power U and the Dream Defenders, we took to the streets. A year later, we set out together on the Black Lives Matter Freedom Ride to Ferguson in search of justice for Mike Brown and all of those who have been torn apart by state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. Forever changed, we returned home and began building the infrastructure for the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which, even in its infancy, listen to this, even in its infancy, has become a political home for many. Unquote. So the Black Lives Matter's website says, enraged by the death of Trayvon Martin and the subsequent acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman. Now that one statement, Omaha, that one statement launches us into a discussion about something that is much bigger than any one organization such as Black Lives Matter. And that discussion is on the topic of justice. That discussion, that that, that statement that I just read from Black Lives Matter launches us into is on the topic of justice. That is what justice is and what it is not, okay? You see, Black Lives Matter wants people to think it wants justice that is unbiased, impartial, and equitable. That kind of justice is often referred to as, quote, cosmic justice, unquote, okay? Cosmic justice, right? Cosmic justice is justice that is totally impartial and completely objective. It is justice that is perfect. It is justice that is unblemished, untarnished, and completely devoid of prejudicial bias or partiality of any kind and without regard to outcomes, Mm -hmm. okay? Without regard to outcomes. Now, though Black Lives Matter would never define or juxtapose the concept of justice as being rooted in the nature and character of the God of the Bible. They would never do that. Nevertheless, the concept of cosmic justice is grounded in the sovereignty and providence of God. But the thing is, Omaha, if you subscribe to the idea of cosmic justice and the notion that a sovereign God is in control of everything that occurs in his world and the societies within that world, including the outcome of every matter that is in dispute, it means also that you willingly accept the outcome of a matter that is in dispute, regardless of whether you are pleased with that outcome or not. Right. That is what true cosmic justice is. But Black Lives Matter isn't interested in that kind of justice. Now, to drive that point home, I want our listeners to consider what author Noah Rothman, what Noah Rothman says in his book, Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America, where Rothman writes this, quote, if we think of the objective blind justice associated with the rule of law as analogous to free market capitalism, Mm -hmm. modern social justice is the equivalent of a command economy. In such a system, justice is a finite commodity like aluminum or wheat, but there is no supply chain. If one person has it, another is deprived of it. Therefore, it falls on a society's most enlightened to distribute justice 
to the most deserving. The phrase, quote, social justice, unquote, would seem to describe a value-neutral proposition to which anyone in his right mind would subscribe. It is, in fact, less a theory of justice. Now listen to this. Rothman says that social justice is, in fact, less a theory of justice than a new way of thinking about how society should be ordered. Yes. The identity politics, and this is to your point earlier, Omaha, the identity politics practiced by today's social justice act- activists has retained its vestigial quasi-religious traits. Though this dogma has traditionally been most attractive to the collectivist left, it has recently found an audience on the populist right. Those who see themselves as members of a marginalized class, he has marginalized in quotes, those who see themselves as, as members of a quote marginalized unquote class and who seek payback against their perceived oppressors through both state and non-government institutions are social justice advocates, whether they know it or not. But harboring grievance is toxic. And in the hands of an in the hands of an influential set of activists, social justice has turned poisonous. I want to read that sentence again from Noah Rothman. He says, but harboring grievance is toxic. And in the hands of an influential set of activists, social justice has turned poisonous. It appeals to our pettiness and stokes envy. It compels us to think of ourselves and those around us as victims inhabiting a complex matrix of persecution. While robbing us of our sense of agency, it entices us to take out our frustrations on our neighbors. It demands that we define people by their hereditary traits and insists that we take subjective inventory of the, quote, privileges, unquote, we acquire at birth. Mm-hmm. It rejects as folly, it rejects as folly the idea that we are free to rise as far as individual aptitude and merit allow. For social justice devotees, listen to this, this is BLM in a nutshell. For social justice devotees, the American idea is a lie, unquote. That was Noah Rothman from his book, Unjust, subtitled The Social Justice Unmasking, Unmaking of America. Social justice and the unmaking of America. Now, along those same lines of thought, I want to quote from the noted economist and author Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell, in his book, Discrimination and Disparities, writes this, quote, Despite the inability to confiscate and redistribute human capital, nevertheless, human capital is, ironically, one of the few things that can be spread to others without those with it having any less remaining for themselves. But one of the biggest obstacles to this happening is the, quote, social justice, unquote, vision in which the fundamental problem of the less fortunate is not an absence of sufficient human capital, but the presence of other people's malevolence. For some, abandoning that vision would mean abandoning a moral melodrama, starring themselves as crusaders against the forces of evil, unquote. Now that is Black Lives Matter perfectly described. Black Lives Matter see themselves as crusaders against the forces of evil. 
Now, mm-hmm. if those quotes from Nora Rothman and Thomas Sowell don't describe the worldview to which Black Lives Matter subscribe, I don't know what does. But we're going to have a lot more to say about that worldview later in this episode. In the meantime, any thoughts from you, Omaha? Lots of thoughts. I, I loved what you what you said about uh, the quote that you gave from Noah Rothman, where he said, "Modern social justice is the equivalent of a of a command economy. In such a system, justice is is a finite commodity like aluminum or wheat, where there's no supply chain. If one ha- if one person has it, another is deprived of it. I, I think that I think that that quote in and of itself uh, was definitely weighty. I want to go back to something you mentioned." Uh, earlier when you when you were reading from the Black Lives Matter website and we talked they talked about being enraged by the death of Trayvon Martin uh, and, and the subsequent acquittal of of his killer George Zimmerman. And they also talked about it being in search of justice for Michael Brown. And and I, I told you I'm, I'm going to pull a T.D. Jakes and kind of leap off of off of a word oh, here no. for just a second <laughs> and uh, and kind of kind of take it take it to another level. But but I really want to begin by, by, by looking at the issue of, of Michael Brown. Uh, this is the same Michael Brown, again, whose death launched the hands up, don't shoot falsehood. You remember that back mm-hmm. in the day? Yep, sure do. Now, I, only, yep. I, only, I only emphasize this to bring the point that you made earlier regarding justice. Black Lives Matter is not interested in justice. Uh, empowered by the same race-hustling tactics of their predecessors, Jackson and Sharpton, uh, BLM finds themselves running across the country to find the latest hot spot where they engage in a narrative, regardless of how egregious, that fits their goal of stirring up the emotions of the gullible. Uh, it, it was the Obama administration's Department of Justice, led by Eric Holder, that could not find enough evidence in the Michael Brown case to charge the officer of wrongdoing in the shooting of Michael Brown. After seven months of investigation, Attorney General Eric Holder said the following in a statement regarding the issue. And this is a, this is a lengthy quote, but, but, it, but it's worth noting because it, it really amplifies the point that, that you just made, that, that this, is, this is not about impartiality. This is not about, about seeking justice in any way, shape, or form. But he, here's what Eric Holder said. He said, quote, nearly seven months have passed since the shooting death of 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. This tragic incident provoked widespread demonstrations and stirred strong emotions from those in the Ferguson area and around our nation. It also prompted a federal investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice, the criminal section of the Civil Rights Division, the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Eastern District of Missouri, and the FBI, seeking to determine whether this shooting violated a federal civil rights law. Now, this morning, and and this is when he was writing, he says this morning, Mm -hmm. the Justice Department announced the conclusion of our investigation and released a comprehensive 87 page report documenting our findings and conclusions. I want to pause here and say that in preparation, brother, for our our podcast, I actually walked through the 87 page report so that I would know exactly what I was talking about when we when we got together during during our time. Awesome. The 87-page the, the report documenting our findings and conclusions that the, and listen to this, the facts do mm. not support the filing of criminal charges against the officer, Darren Wilson, in this case. Michael Brown's death, though a tragedy, did not involve prosecutable conduct on the part of Officer Wilson. 
He goes on to say, this conclusion represents the sound, considered, and independent judgment of expert career prosecutors within the Department of Justice. I've personally, I have been personally briefed on multiple occasions about these findings, and I, again, this is Eric Holder of the Obama right. administration's department. He says, I concur with the investigative team's judgment and the determination about our inability to meet the required federal standard. He said the outcome is supported by the facts the, by the facts we have found. Now, he, he mentions this. He says, I know that these findings may not be consistent with some people's expectations. To all those who have closely followed this case, who, who have engaged in important national dialogue, it inspired, I urge you to read this report in full. He says, I recognize that these findings in our report may leave some to wonder how the department's findings can differ so sharply from the initial and widely reported accounts of what transpired. I want you to hear this closely. He said, he said this, I want to emphasize that the strength and integrity of America's justice system has always rested. This is a point that you made earlier, Daryl, has always mm -hmm. rested on its ability to deliver M partial results mm -hmm, in precisely mm -hmm. these type of difficult circumstances adhering strictly to the facts and the law regarding these assumptions. Now, again, I, I, I took the time to read that because I want to make clear this, this is not some, you know, white uh, 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 conspiracy to, to, to push down the evidence, right? This is Obama uh, the, the black Messiah. Right. And his and, yep. and Eric and Eric Holder, uh, his his attorney general, who took all of the time that they could to investigate the context of the Michael Brown shooting. Now, th again, this this is the catalyst. The, the Trayvon Martin case and the Michael Brown case are the catalyst for black the Black Lives Matter movement that we currently mm -hmm. are dealing with. And we see mm -hmm. in both of those cases, they're on the basis of, of, of information that's inaccurate and incorrect when, when rightly uh, examined. Now, Daryl, when, when I think, of, when I, when I think of, uh, of chaos, right, when I think of the king of chaos, I'm reminded of the comic book character, the Joker, right, the Joker. Yep. <laughs> now, now, the Joker would first appear in DC Comics in 1940, and the Joker was Batman's nemesis. Now, he was known for creating chaos, my, my favorite version of the Joker was the movie debut in 2008 of Batman The Dark Knight. You remember watching this movie? Yep, I sure do. Yeah, now this, this Joker was played by Heath Ledger. This Joker had no other plan than to create absolute chaos for mm -hmm. Batman and the people of Gotham. It, it, it's some of the things that the Joker said in the movie that makes me think of the BLM movement. Because it, 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 was, it was the Joker in the movie who said this. He said this, man, and I quote, As you know, he said, madness is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. And, and, and then, he, and then he, followed, he followed with this, man, quote, Introduce a little anarchy, upset the established order, and everything becomes chaos. He said, I'm an uh -huh. agent of chaos. Uh -huh. Now, if 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 this isn't if this isn't an exact example of what we're seeing in our culture today with the Black Lives Matter movement, I don't know what is. BLM is not interested in cosmic justice. They're nope. interested in creating chaos for the systemic overthrow of the government. That's what they're interested in. Brilliant point. Brilliant point. And just to revisit that issue of, of that, that that sort of context, that construct of cosmic justice. 
I want to quote again from the renowned economist and author Thomas Sowell, arguably or unarguably, in my opinion, one of the greatest minds our country has ever known. Sowell wrote a book called The Quest for Cosmic Justice. And in that book, he explains justice this way, quote, cosmic justice is not simply a higher degree of traditional justice. It is fundamentally a different concept. Traditionally, justice or injustice is a characteristic of a process. Let me pause right there. You recall earlier in the episode, Omaha, that I mentioned that Black Lives Matters they had no grievance. They had no problem with the way the trial was conducted of George Zimmerman. They had issues with the outcome, with the outcome. Okay, so this point here that Saul is bringing up is crucial. He, Saul says cosmic justice is not simply a higher degree of traditional justice. It is a fundamentally different concept. Traditionally, justice or injustice is a characteristic of a process. Mm-hmm. A defendant in a criminal case will be said to have received justice if the trial were conducted as it should be under fair rules and with the judge, with the judges and jury being impartial after such a trial, it could be said that quote justice was done unquote, regardless of whether the outcome was an acquittal or an execution. Conversely, if the trial were conducted in violation of the rules and with a judge or jury showing prejudice against the defendant, this would be considered an unfair or unjust trial, even if the prosecutor failed in the end to get enough jurors to vote to convict an innocent person. In short, Sowell says, in short, Sowell says, traditional justice is about impartial processes rather than either results or prospects. Now, let me pause again. This is why I spent time early on emphasizing the fact that Black Lives Matters was fundamentally founded on the basis that they were upset that George Zimmerman was acquitted. They had no prop. They had no issue with the way the trial was conducted. As Sol says here, and as I said earlier, if that had been the case, then they'd have, had a, they'd have some issues to lodge. Absolutely. But there were no issues with the case. They were just upset with the outcome. Okay? Sol continues. Similar conceptions, similar conceptions of justice or fairness extend beyond the legal system. A, quote, fair fight, unquote, is one in which both combatants observe the rules, regardless of whether that leads to a draw or to a one-sided beating. Applying the same rules of baseball to all meant that Mark McGuire hit 70 home runs, while some other players hit less than 10. The, quote, career open to talents, unquote, or, quote, a level playing field, unquote, usually means that everyone plays by the same rules and is judged by the same standards. Again, if the process itself, please don't miss this, listeners, if the process itself meets that standard, then no matter the outcome, you had your chance, Soul says. But this is not what is meant by those people who speak of social justice. In fact, rules and standards equally applicable to all are often deliberately set aside in pursuit of, quote, social justice, unquote. Nor are such exceptions aberrations. Listen to this. The two concepts are mutually incompatible. 
What social justice, Soul says, what social justice seeks to do, to do is eliminate undeserved disadvantages for selected groups, unquote. There you have the objectives of Black Lives Matter in one sentence. Yes. Black Lives Matter seeks to eliminate undeserved disadvantages or subjective disadvantages for selected groups, only for selected groups, okay? What Black Lives Matter wanted, to, wanted with the trial of George Zimmerman was not cosmic justice. They did not want the kind of justice in which the judicial processes involved were conducted fairly and without prejudice and where the outcome, regardless if it was favorable to them or not, was achieved in accordance with the law. On the contrary, what Black Lives Matter wanted then and what Black Lives Matter wants today is social justice, not cosmic justice, okay? Black Lives Matter wants the kind of justice in which the processes and outcomes are by definition grounded in partiality, bias, and discrimination so that the outcomes are guaranteed only for certain individuals and groups. That, my friend, is not justice. That is the distortion and perversion of justice. Now, I want our listeners, Omaha, to carefully consider what I've just said in light of what Scripture teaches us about how seriously God takes the sin of partiality. Because partiality, partiality is the cornerstone upon which the Black Lives Matter organization and worldview is built. Now, just to give our listeners a heads up. Hold, 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 hold. What you just said, I, I want you to slow down. That was so nice. You have to say it twice. And our listeners need to hear what you just what you just stated about the, the very foundational structure of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, let me go back a couple of sentences. And what I said earlier was that what Black Lives Matter wanted then, and by then I mean all the way back to 2013 when yes. the organization was founded. What Black yes. Lives Matter wanted then with the Trayvon Martin situation and what Black Lives Matter wants even right now today mm-hmm. is social justice. They do not want cosmic justice. They want social justice. Black Lives Matter wants the kind of justice in which the processes and outcomes are by definition, okay, by definition grounded in partiality, bias, and discrimination so that the outcomes are guaranteed for certain individuals and groups. You can go to their own website and see this in black and white. That is not justice. That's not justice. That is the distortion and the perversion of justice. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, I want to reiterate again. I want to ask our listeners again to consider what I just said. Consider what I just said in light of what Scripture teaches us about how incredibly seriously God takes the sin of partiality. Because partiality is the cornerstone upon which the entire Black Lives Matter organization and worldview is built. Okay? It's why it exists. It exists on the fundamental cornerstone that that they embrace partiality. I want to give our listeners a heads up. I have 17 scripture verses that I want to cite to establish how God views the sin of impartiality, uh, the sin of partiality, how God views justice okay uh scripture number one deuteronomy chapter one verse 17 you shall not show partiality in judgment you shall hear the small 
and the great alike. You shall not fear man for the judgment is God's. Okay, you shall not fear man for the judgment is God's. That's Deuteronomy 117. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial and you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Proverbs 16 verse 33 the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 11. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. That means all outcomes concern God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 3. You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Let me pause right here. I love how God's uh, uh, a concept of justice is so righteous It is so pure that it is a sin even to be partial to a poor man Mm -hmm. in the dispute. Okay? Even to the poor. If you're partial to the poor, that's a sin. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 25. A truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence, it says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of of only one witness. Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 18. Like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. Proverbs 12, verse 17, he who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness speaks deceit. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Proverbs 14, verse 5, a trustworthy witness will not lie, 
but a false witness utters lies. Proverbs 19, verse 28. A rascally witness makes a mockery of justice, and the mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1. Now, if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, and this is, this is a person who lies under oath. If a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or, or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, that is, if he does not tell the truth about what he has seen or otherwise known, then he will bear his guilt. And then lastly, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. Leviticus 19, 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. That was Leviticus 19:15. Now, I cited those 17 verses, being completely aware, as I said earlier, that Black Lives Matter is in no way, they in no way resemble an ecclesiastical body. Nevertheless, the principles that are intrinsic to those verses help us to see what true cosmic justice, if you will, looks like in a society. And it is on that note that I want to interject these words by John Calvin from his classic work, his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin said this, quote, In all laws, we must bear these two things in mind, what the law prescribes and how equitable it is. For it is on equity that the law's prescription rests. Since equity is natural, since equity is natural, it is inevitably the same for all peoples. Thus, all the laws on earth, whatever their particular concern, should be about equity. As for the law's regulations or prescriptions, because they are conditioned by circumstances on which they partly depend, there is no reason why they should not be different, provided they are all directed to the goal of equity. Now, as God's law, which we call moral, essentially bears witness to the natural law and to conscience, which our Lord has imprinted on the hearts of all men. That's Romans 119. There is no doubt, Calvin says, that the equity of which we now speak is wholly revealed in natural law. Now, listen how Calvin closes this out. Listen closely to this, listeners. That is why, Calvin says, equity, not outcomes, not equality, equity must be the goal. This, this, if I could pause here real quick, Omar, this is, this is going back to that quote you read from uh, Obama's attorney general. Um, right, Eric Holder. Uh, Eric Holder. Eric Holder. This, yep. this point that Calvin is making is, is why Eric Holder was absolutely right and Justin saying what he said, Calvin said, that is why equity must be the goal, the rule, and the finality of all laws, unquote. That was John Calvin from his institute in the chapter on civil government. Calvin, Calvin said that equity, not outcome, must be the goal, the rule, and finality of all laws. And by equity, Calvin is implying judgment without partiality of any kind. See, that perspective of justice is not unique to Calvin, okay? That perspective is not unique to, young, to John Calvin. The first century Roman philosopher Lucius Aeneas Seneca said this in Latin. He said, 
Auditor et altera pars, which translated to English means the other side shall be heard as well. The 19th century French poet and novelist Victor Hugo said this, quote, being good is easy. What is difficult is being just, unquote. The Greek philosopher Plato said, quote, it is better, in fact, to be guilty of manslaughter than to be guilty of fraud about what is fair and just, unquote. The 5th century Greek playwright Euripides said this, quote, In case of dissension, never dare to judge until you've heard the other side, unquote. Now, all those quotes align with what we found in Proverbs 18, 13, which reads, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. In other words, in matters of dispute, we are to hear all sides without prejudice, partiality, and without regard to outcome. Mm -hmm. True cosmic justice, okay, true cosmic justice is justice that is completely impartial regardless of situations, circumstances, or outcomes. Justice is never defined or, or determined by feelings or aesthetics or on the basis of so what someone thinks may or may not have occurred. Nor is justice defined or determined on the basis of a particular outcome or result that we would like to see come to pass, and which conversely, if that desire or result does not come to pass, we automatically deem it to be injustice. Right. And before I continue, Omaha, before I continue, I want to say this. If the skin color of the victim of a perceived injustice is actually what triggers your supposed righteous indignation, you have a bigger problem than that perceived injustice because what you just demonstrated is that your heart is even darker than the color of that person's skin. Okay? I want to repeat that because I know that's I got some... Good. Come on. Some, we, yeah, that's we good. Got some, we, we got some haters uh, listen to us right now who, who are engulfed in embracing the BM, BLM worldview. This, I'm so saying good. this to you. I'm saying yep. this to you. If the skin color of the victim of a perceived injustice is actually what triggers your supposed righteous indignation, you, my brother or sister, have a bigger problem than that perceived injustice. Because what you're demonstrating is that your heart is even darker than the color of that person's skin. Okay? Absolutely. And you know how I often think whenever this matter of justice comes up about how evangelical social stitches, they love to cite their pet verse, man. Micah mm -hmm. 6 8. Right. Micah right, 6 right. 8. Oh, goodness. He has told you, <laughs> oh, man, what is good. And yeah. what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? They love that verse, bro. They yeah. love it. And not only do they love that verse, they love to cherry pick two words from that verse mm -hmm. the words do justice. But in most cases, right, they never stop to ask or consider objectively what that word justice actually means. Right. They simply extrapolate those two words from that verse because it fits their own subjective construct of what justice is to them. Okay. Right. Justice doesn't mean equal opportunities, nor does it have anything to do with equal outcomes. Mm -hmm. Justice has everything to do with equity, not equality. And mm -hmm. equity means showing no partiality. That's exactly what Calvin was saying. Equity must be the goal of all laws. But in Micah 6, 8, let me just exegete here for a second. In Micah 6, 8, 
The word justice is the Hebrew noun mishpat. Mishpat. The word mishpat is spelled M-I-S-H-P-A-T. That word mishpat is a judicial term that has to do with rendering a decision or handing down a sentence in a legal proceeding. But see, the vast majority of evangelical social justices that I encounter who so often throw Micah 6-8 in my face, they do it in such a way as to put a period after the word justice, as if the only words in that entire passage were the words, do justice, right? right. Now, right. notwithstanding what the rest of Micah 6-8 says, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God, what I've come to realize, Omaha, is that the overwhelming majority of evangelical social justicians who quote Micah 6-8 define justice solely in terms of certain outcomes that they want to see come to fruition. In other words, if a jury, for example, in a trial renders a verdict, a verdict that is personally satisfactory and pleasing to them, then to them that's justice. Right. But when and if the opposite is the case, when the opposite happens, that's injustice. Right, right, so, right. So the Black Lives Matter, justice is holy, okay? It is completely a construct that is based solely on preferred outcomes, preferred outcomes, primarily for black people, okay? Now, what people need to understand is that, okay? That is precisely, it is precisely that kind of subjective paradigm of justice that gave birth to Black Lives Matter. That is why we've taken the time in this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast to exposit the motives, okay, to exposit the motives and the impetus for why Black Lives Matter was formed. Not just that they were formed, but why it was formed in the first place. I mean, why be indignant over the fact that Trayvon Martin's killer, George Zimmerman, was acquitted, and yet not be indignant over the hundreds, if not thousands, of black people who kill one another every year in America in cities like Chicago, St. Louis, Cleveland, Washington, D.C., New Orleans, and Atlanta. Okay, I'll tell you why they're not indignant over those kind of killings, because Black Lives Matter views justice through melanin-colored glasses. Okay? <laughs> Absolutely, yep. Unlike what the scriptures declare, that justice should be a matter of objective evidence and the truthful and unbiased testimony of multiple witnesses and a judicial process that is impartial and that doesn't favor any of the parties involved, Mm-hmm. For the founders of Black Lives Matter, the trial of George Zimmerman was about none of those things. Right. The only thing that mattered to Black Lives Matter is that Trayvon Martin was black, period. Okay? Now, you'll no doubt recall, Omaha, that our Just Thinking podcast episode titled Whiteness, for our listeners who want to go back and listen to that episode, it's episode number 67. It's titled Whiteness. Right. In that episode, we made the, the, point, the point to define whiteness as anything that is not blackness. Mm-hmm. If you want a succinct definition of what whiteness is, that's it. Whiteness is anything that is not blackness. That is fundamentally what whiteness is. Now, I mention that because although George Zimmerman is not a white man in terms of his ethnicity, for all intents and purposes, Zimmerman may as well have been a white man as far as Black Lives Matter is concerned and those who support that organization. Now, I say that because the truth is, had, Mar- had Trayvon Martin been killed by a black man, 
And had that black man subsequently been acquitted in a court of law, you and I would not be having this conversation today, Omaha, because the founders of Black Lives Matter would not have cared enough to be so indignant as to launch such an organization in the first place. Right, right. In fact, the truth is, had Trayvon Martin, who was black, been killed by a black person, we wouldn't even know Trayvon Martin's name. Absolutely. What you got, man? Absolutely, man. That's a, I love what you did, loved what you walked us through. As a result, I want to I go back and reiterate the point that you're making about the fact that if, the, uh, that if, if Trayvon Martin had been murdered by someone who was black, we would not know his name. We've all heard the names George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the like, but few of us know the names of blacks killed by other blacks. And th- there's a reason for that, and, and that's because blacks killed by other blacks don't provide the appropriate emotional response necessary for black lives matter advocates to promote their chaos. The truth is, and I'll say it again, black lives do not matter to black lives matter. Uh, In 2012, or rather, I'm sorry, the Bureau, let me say, let me go back and say this. The Bureau of Justice Statistics reported from 1980 to 2008 that 93% of black murders were committed by blacks. In, in 2012, that figure dropped to 91%. So 91% of black murders were committed by other blacks. Now, mm. now this fact is usually dismissed by those who claim ethnic groups murder those within their own ethnic group. Uh, of interest regarding the number that 91% uh, of, of, of blacks murder other blacks is that black men between the ages of 14 and 24 actually suffered disproportionately from the murder from murder in the black community. This single group actually represents only 1% of the population, but they suffer from a highly from highly disproportionate risk. Now, if there's any single group most vulnerable to death at the hands of a murderer, it's a black male between the ages of 14 to 24. Now, here's here's a point that you alluded to earlier. In May 29th to May 31st in 2020, it was actually the deadliest weekend in Chicago's 60-year history. There were 18 murders in 24 hours with an additional 48 people that were shot and wounded during that same time. I thought to take a moment to mention a few of the names that you will never hear of because of the fact that they don't fit the narrative that creates the systemic chaos intended by Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter. Now, yep. now, the following is, is an excerpt I've taken from the Chicago Tribune. So I, I went to the Chicago area and got this information from the Chicago Tribune. Uh, but, but this is only a handful of the lives that were lost the weekend of May 29th through 31st. Lives like Ange- Angelo Bronson. She was standing at Inglewood's 6800 block of South Laughlin in uh, on May 31st, when someone fired shots from a passing car, striking striking him, Angelo Bronson, striking him in the chest. Now, this 36-year-old father of two, he had two young children, was dead less than an hour later. Now, Bronson had lived in Washington, D.C. area for years where he worked at installing so- solar panels and was remembered by friends as hardworking, humble, and quick to laugh. He had come home for the weekend to visit his family who lived in the neighborhood, which he did frequently. How about the name John Tiggs? John Tiggs was 32. 
He was walking into a metro uh, at, at the 8100 block of Halstead on May 31st. He stopped there to pay his bills. That's at least what the family said. When shots were fired inside of a store amid widespread looting. And, and this and, and, and Tiggs, uh, he, he was his family described him as a devoted father of three young children. It was struck in the abdomen and died. A 15 year old boy was also injured. On, on May 31st, the victims included two 18-year-old women. Both of them were students. Lazar, Lazara Daniels, a student at DRW College Prep in Lawndale, was found shot by officers at 8. At, at they, she, the officers found her. She was already shot at 10.51 p.m. On, on that Sunday. The principal, Tony Sutton, called Daniels. Uh, her death, an incalculable loss for her family, and one that that whose pain will be will will last an incredibly long time. Um, Kishana, Kishana Bolton uh, was enrolled at Western Illinois University, where she was a stu- where she was studying law enforcement and justice, and she hoped to become a correctional officer. Police said Bolton was killed that, that Sunday afternoon when she was shot during an argument in Inglewood where she grew up now, now all of these are lives and, and, I, and I only scratched the surface of what was actually in the article all of these were lives that will never be mentioned by those advocating that black lives matter mm-hmm. why yep. because they don't feed they, they, these stories these lives don't provide the fuel for the emotional and systemic chaos that is necessary to fuel Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, in my estimation, should change their name to Black Lies Matter. Black Lies Matter. Lies like hands up. Black what? Black Lies. L I E S. Black Lies Matter. And, and again, the, the reason I say that, man, is because hands hands up, don't shoot was an absolute lie. But True. that's what they fueled their movement on. And it, it, those stories like that provide the appropriate fake narrative that moves people to march against systems targeted by BLM for upheaval. That's what I've got to say about that. Excellent, bro. Excellent. You know, Omaha, in the what we believe section of the Black Lives Matter website, the organization states this, quote, Black Lives Matter began as a call to action in response to state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. Our intention from the very beginning was to connect black people from all over the world, almost laughing when I read this part. Our intention from the very beginning was to connect black people from all over the world who have a shared desire for justice, ha ha ha, a shared desire for justice to act together in their communities. Yeah, right. The impetus for that commitment, I continue reading from the Black Lives Matter website in the section What We Believe. The impetus for that commitment was and still is the rampant and deliberate violence inflicted on us by the state, unquote. What I just read was verbatim from the Black Lives Matter website. Now, let's pause right there for a moment, Omaha. Black Lives Matter says its objectives are, quote, a shared desire for justice, unquote, for black people to, quote, act together in their communities, unquote, and, quote, the rampant and deliberate against, quote, the rampant and deliberate violence inflicted on us 
by the state, unquote, us being black people. Mm-hmm. First of all, and to your earlier point, when you gave those statistics, first of all, it's not, quote, the state, unquote, that's inflicting, quote, rampant and deliberate violence, unquote, in black communities in America. Mm-hmm. It's predominantly black people who are doing that to each other, okay? Absolutely. And you just gave some, some haunting statistics that bear that out, Omaha. It's not it's, it's not the state that's doing that. It's black people who are doing that. Second, yep. some of the most egregious occurrences of what is called, quote, racism, unquote, by black people in America today is a direct result of the intra-ethnic prejudice that is exhibited by black people toward other black people. Mm. Now, that's the kind of racism no one wants to talk about, Okay. Some of the most egregious occurrences of racism in America is direct result of intra-ethnic prejudice that is exhibited by black people toward other black people. Mm-hmm. It's like I've, I've written about Omaha and said countless times, the very idea of quote-unquote black community is a myth. It's a myth. It's a mirage. It's a phantasm. Black community does not exist listen listen never think okay never think that because black people share a common shade of melanin that they also share a common worldview never think that never never think that for example though many evangelical social social justicians who support black lives matter are no doubt familiar with the names trayvon martin and george zimmerman I seriously doubt that many of them will be familiar with the names Socoria Turner and Julian Conley. Socoria Turner is the name of an eight-year-old black girl who was shot and killed on July 4th, 2020 in Southeast Atlanta, my hometown. Julian Conley is the name of the 19-year-old black man who has been arrested and charged with Socoria Turner's murder. Now, is Black Lives Matter expressing how, quote-unquote, enraged they are over Socoria Turner's killing? No. No, they're not. Why? Because their indignation is selective. It's that way with many black Americans today. Their supposed outrage and anger over the violence that happens to black people is predicated upon the skin color of both the perpetrator and the victim. You see, Omaha is different when both the victim and the perpetrator are black. There are no outcries for justice from Black Lives Matter in those situations. Oh, no. In fact, in many situations in black communities and neighborhoods in America, when a black person is killed by another black person, the individuals who live in those communities will often refuse to cooperate with the police to bring the offender to justice. That'll preach. That will preach right there. Now, why? Why is that? Well, that's because the offender is black. Mm -hmm. They do this out of some twisted and warped sense of ethnic tribalism that somehow deems it virtuous and beneficent to prevent a black offender from being arrested and facing the same judicial processes and consequences that they would want anyone else to face who was not black. That is an unarguable fact, okay? When the victim is black and the offender is anything other than black, particularly when the offender is someone who is in a position of authority, such as a police officer, only then Does Black Lives Matter want to rise up and protest and remonstrate in the streets and demand, quote, justice, unquote? Why? Right. Okay, why is that? Because as their own website states, Black Lives Matter is a political organization. 
And being a political organization, it is no different than any other political entity in that Black Lives Matter has an agenda that it is pursuing. And to the extent that certain acts of violence, such as those involving black victims and non-black perpetrators, Black Lives Matter will opportunistically take advantage of those acts of violence in order to propagate and advance their political agenda, which, by the way, is heavily influenced and guided by the ideology of Marxism. In fact, two of the three founding members of Black Lives Matter, Patrice Colors and Alicia Garza, have acknowledged that they both are, quote, trained Marxist, unquote. Listen to the following from a New York Post article dated June 20 of 2020 titled, quote, Black Lives Matter co-founder describes herself as, quote, trained Marxist, unquote. I'm quoting from that New York Post article dated June 20th, 2020, quote, Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Colors said in a newly surfaced video from 2015 that she and her fellow organizers are, quote, trained Marxists, unquote, making clear that their movement's ideological foundation, according to a report, Colors, 36, was the protege of Eric Mann, that's Eric, M-A-N-N, Eric Mann, former agitator of the Weather Underground Domestic Terror Organization, and spent years absorbing the Marxist-Leninist ideology that shaped her worldview, quote, Quoting Colors here, the first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Myself and Alicia, referring to Alicia Garza, in particular, are trained organizers, unquote, she said, referring to BLM co-founder Alicia Garza. Quote, we are trained Marxists. We are super versed on sort of ideological theories. And I think that what we really tried to do is build a movement that could be utilized by many, many black folk, Colors added in the interview with Jarrett Ball of the Real News Network. While promoting her book titled When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir in 2018, Colors described her introduction to and support for Marxist ideology. She described to Democracy Now!, a cable TV political news program whose content leans heavily to the left, how she became a trained organizer with the Labor Community Strategy Center, which she called her first political home under the mentorship of Mann, that is Eric Mann, its director. The center, which described its philosophy as, quote, an urban experiment, unquote, uses grassroots organization to, quote, focus on black and Latino communities with deep and historical ties to the long history of anti-colonial, anti-imperialist, pro-communist resistance to the U.S. empire, unquote, according to the outlet. It also expresses its appreciation for the work of the U.S. Communist Party, quote, especially black communists, unquote, as well as its support for, quote, the great work of the Black Panther Party, the American Indian Movement, Young Lords, Brown Berets, and the Great Revolutionary Rainbow Experiments of the 1970s, unquote. In 1968, Mann, that is Eric Mann, was a coordinator for Students for a Democratic Society, 
from which a more radical wing, the Weather Underground, was splintered the following year. It was led, it being the Weather Underground, was led by Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, who called for, quote, direct action over civil disobedience, seeking the overthrow of the U.S. government. In 1969, the FBI classified the group as a domestic terror organization. Mann was eventually charged with assault and battery, disturbing the peace, damaging property, defacing a building, and disturbing a public assembly for which he spent 18 months behind bars, unquote. Again, that was from a New York Post article from June 20th, 2020. Now, given that two-thirds of the founders of Black Lives Matter have confessed to holding to a Marxist ideology and worldview, I want to share some information with our listeners about the man that Patrice Kalorza and Alicia Garza seem to esteem so highly, namely the man known as Karl Heinrich Marx, more commonly known to us as Karl Marx. In the book, in the book titled Revolutions and Worldview, Understanding the Flow of Western Thought, author W. Andrew Hoffaker writes this about Marx, quote, Karl Marx believed abstract, transcendental, metaphysical terms did not describe human nature. Humans are merely the matter from which they have come. Nothing exists over and above the material world. Marx was pessimistic about human nature. Apart from social pressures asserted by the community for its good, humans are intrinsically selfish. Social ties, social ties exist before individual moral standards and are the only ground for those standards. The collective good of the society precedes, Marx says, the collective good of the society precedes any moral principles that elevate the dignity of the individual. Now that is antithetical to what, what is taught in Genesis 127 about the Imago Dei. Continuing here, according to Marx, the origin of religion reveals it to be a determined oppressor. Did you get that? Mm. Marx believed that the origin of religion reveals it to be a determined oppressor. People sought meaning beyond themselves and created a god in their own image. Dominant economic forces manipulated this fantasy, this fantasy figure to justify their system. Marx disparaged religion believing it justified oppressive economic conditions. Religion was idolatrous. It created a God who served the economic interests of masters. Workers held on to religion to protect themselves against the inhumanity of the industrial workplace. Religion gave them hope in a hopeless world. Owners used religion to submit their oppressive existence. Marx did not take individual evil seriously. He hoped systemic, economic, and political changes would eradicate it. Contrary to Marx's assumptions, communities can be just as oppressive as individuals can. Marx did not see that religious confession could function as a prophetic voice against human injustice precisely because it offers a word from, quote, outside, unquote. The transcendent voice of God's word judges all people 
is precisely the tool Marx yearned for with which to criticize culture. One only need to read the Old Testament prophets to see this. Now listen to this. Listen how this quote is closed out. Without a transcendent word, that is without a word that is outside of us, the only judge of human actions can be human words, which are always corruptible individually and corporately. Now let me pause right there. I want to go into another quote, but let me pause there for a second. Just, I want to reiterate something here. Harfecker says this. He says that Marx did not take individual evil seriously and that he hoped systemic and op, his, he hoped systemic economic and political changes would eradicate evil. Now, what does that sound like, Omaha? I'm going off, no, off my notes here for a second. But what does that sound like? That sounds just like the social gospel. Right. It sounds just like the social gospel. Right. It sounds just like the social gospel that many evangelicals and professing Christians are propagating right now, mm-hmm. hoping that systemic and, and, and systemic economic and political changes will eradicate evil. Those are the folks who you, you hear say all the time, well, it's not enough to just preach the gospel. That's those folks. That's those folks right there who believe just like Karl Marx. They believe just like Marx and that they, they believe that changing systems, uh, economic and political systems, will eradicate evil. That's the social gospel. It's preaching the same thing that Karl Marx believed without calling it Marxism. All right, another quote. In an article titled Karl Marx versus Charles Spurgeon, An Epic Struggle for the Souls of Men in 19th Century London, writer Larry Alex Taunton, last name is spelled T-A-U-N-T-O-N, Larry Alex Taunton writes this, quote, Although he, that is Karl Marx, fashioned himself as a scholar, he was more of a dilettante, a dabbler in scholarly activity. A scholar began, and this is very important, listeners, that you catch this. A scholar, Taunton writes, a scholar begins with a tentative thesis and allows the facts to dictate his conclusion. Mm -hmm. He is, in other words, committed to the truth. In sharp contrast to this methodology, Marx, like, quote, woke media and, quote, woke policies and, quote, woke, unquote, academia, began with a conclusion and worked back from it. Facts be damned. Now, let me pause right here. What Taunton is saying here, he's describing the narrative that underscores what you're hearing uh, repeatedly and almost ubiquitously mentioned, especially when certain pockets of the evangelical church today accusing all white people of being racist and supremacist. White supremacist. This is exactly what you're hearing. They're working from a conclusion. They're drawing a conclusion and working back as opposed to a scholar, according to Tartan, who begins with a thesis and allows the facts to dictate the conclusion. What you're hearing in woke theology and woke evangelicalism is social justices will throw a conclusion out there as if it's the facts. Right. Taunton continues, he quotes Karl Marx. Communism, quote, I'm quoting here, communism abolishes eternal truths. He, Karl Marx, declared openly in the Communist Manifesto from 1848. Quote, quoting Marx, it abolishes all religion, it being communism. Communism abolishes all religion and all morality 
instead of constituting them on a new basis, unquote. Taunton continues in his article, and another passage of that dangerous little book, that dangerous little book being the Communist Manifesto, Marx says this, quote, abolish the family. Let me pause here for a second. Those words, Omaha, given the research that you and I both have done, should resonate with you from what we've read on the Black Lives Matters website. Right. Black Lives Matters on their own website say that they want to get rid of the uh, patriarchal family where he, that is led by the father, but is led by a man. This is exactly what Marx wanted to do. Marx wants to abolish the family. Marx says his, here in the Communist Manifesto, abolish the family. The bourgeois family will vanish as a matter of course when its complement vanishes. And both will vanish with the vanishing of capital. The bourgeois claptrap about the family and education, about the hallowed correlation of parent and child, becomes all the more disgusting, the more, by the action of modern industry, all family ties among the proletarians are torn asunder and their children transformed into simple articles of commerce and instruments of labor, unquote. That was Karl Marx himself from the Communist Manifesto. I'm continuing to read from Larry Taunton's article. Much as Mein Kampf from 1925 will be a bald statement of Hitler's intentions should he ever attain power, the Communist Manifesto is likewise clear in stating the objectives of communists, i.e. socialists, should they ever attain power. No one could justly say he was not forewarned. And parenthetically, Tartan says this as he closes out this, this portion of the article. Listen to this closely. So it is too with Black Lives Matter, where one finds all of this, that is all of Marx, Marx's ideology, all of this restated in oblique terms on their website, mm-hmm. unquote. So what Black Lives Matters has done on their website, Taunton is saying here, is uh, sort of uh, replicate the worldview of Karl Marx, okay, obliquely though, obliquely so that it's not so conspicuous, so it's not so evident. But when you read between the lines of what's on the, the Black Lives Matters website and then what's on there in, uh, printed in their manifesto, it's clear. Taunton is exactly right. All of this that Karl Marx believed, is restated on the Black Lives Matter website, but in oblique terms. In his book, Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism, author Joshua Moravchik writes this, quote, although Karl Marx lived until 1830, I'm sorry, although Karl Marx lived until 1883, he was was born in 1818, although Karl Marx lived until 1883, much of his final 11 years was spent in search for cures for his numerous ailments. When he was interred at London's Highgate Cemetery, fewer than 20 mourners attended. The loneliness of his death and the failure of his life both owed much to a central paradox about Marx. He thought of himself as a man who devoted himself to, quote, working for humanity, unquote, as he liked to phrase it, comparing himself invidiously with, quote, so-called practical men who busied themselves with career and family. But whatever his devotion to humanity in general, to the concrete individuals with whom he came in contact, 
From childhood until old age, Marx was never kind and often cruel, unquote. In the book, A History of Western Philosophy and Theology, theologian John Frame writes this, quote, People have often asked whether violent revolution is really necessary. Peaceful social movements, particularly religions, have brought great improvements in the condition of the poor. Christians were in the vanguard in abolishing the slave trade and slavery itself, also in the care of orphans and widows, improving education, encouraging science and art. But Marx thought that religions and liberal social movements should not be encouraged. In his view, they were counterproductive because they waste precious time and energy and do not get to the root of the problem. Listen to this from John Frame about Marx. The real problems Marx and later Marxists argued are structural. What does that sound like, Omaha? Isn't that all you're hearing today, right? That's all you're hearing within social, uh, from, from evangelical social justicians and secular social justicians alike. No, the problems is structural. The problem is not spiritual. The root of the problem is structural. Right. I'm continuing to quote frames, uh, John Frame here. They cannot be solved. So, so the, the Marxists say that the real problems are structural. They cannot be solved until there is radical change in the very nature of society. This is what people do not understand about, about Black Lives Matter. It's not some just innocuous hashtag. Black Lives Matters want to, wants to, as Barack Obama said when he was running for, for, for president, Black Lives Matter wants to fundamentally transform society. If people who are listening to me right now would take the time to go and read from the Black Lives Matters website and read their manifesto titled A Vision for Black Lives, Policy Demands for Black Power, Freedom, and Justice, they would see this for themselves. Okay, Frame says that Marxists argue that the real problems are structural. That is a code word that you always hear all the time. That's code for changing, as Frame says, the very nature of society. Frame continues talking about Marx. He says the means of production, this is Karl Marx, Karl Marx believed that the means of production must be taken from the rich capitalists and given to the representatives of the poor. Don't miss that, listeners. This is Black Lives Matter. Frame says that Marx believed that production must be taken from the rich capitalists. This is the same thing that Black Lives Matter believes if you just read them. This is the exact same thing they endorse. Production must be taken from the rich capitalists and given not to the poor, to your point earlier, Omaha, where's all this money going? Right. Where's all right. this money going? They don't they don't no, they don't they don't believe in giving the money to the poor, but to the representatives of the poor. The representatives of the poor. That's why when any socialist society, there's always this little pocket, this always little clique who get extremely wealthy when the masses remain extremely poor, extremely impoverished. Frame continues, he says, so Marx described religion, particularly Christianity, as a, quote, opiate, unquote, a kind of drug given to the poor by the rich to persuade them that revolution is not needed. Until the influence of the opiate 
They come to think that they will get their due reward through normal social change and eventually a reward, quote, in the sky by and by, unquote. So Marxists regard religion as a barrier to revolution. Listen to this, people. Please get this. So Marxists regard religion as a barrier to revolution and therefore a barrier to truly radical social change. Marx erred in his judgment. Marx erred in his judgment in that his dialectic did not end with the communist revolution. Ironically, indeed, the dialectic continued in a way that paralleled Marx's analysis of past relations of production, for the revolution brought about a new arrangement of haves and have-nots. The haves were the government and their political allies, and the have-nots were everybody else, unquote. That was from John Frame's book, I'm sorry, that was Joshua Moravchik, rather. That was Joshua Moravchik from his book, Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism. Now, why is all this about Karl Marx important to this conversation, Omaha? It's important because Christians are being duped into thinking that Black Lives Matter is an organization whose mission is founded upon some innocuous and inoffensive hashtag, when in reality... It is an organization whose agenda is driven by an ungodly worldview and ideology that has literally destroyed millions of lives over the course of human history. And the truth about Black Lives Matter needs to be told. It needs to be told. That is why all of this about Karl Marx is relevant to the conversation we're having about Black Lives Matter. Thoughts, man? Man, I I, I appreciate the section that you just walked through, and I'm going to encourage our listeners to go back with, with pen in hand. In fact, I really want them to go back to when you began citing all of those verses of Scripture. I mean, because that in and of itself um, just underscores the fact that, that we do not serve a God who is partial, right? We serve an impartial God, uh, a God who's sovereign over all, who stands upon, upon justice, uh, is a just God, uh, a, a God who, who, whose wrath is, is bared out with equity, uh, between the poor and the rich, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all those things need to be examined and looked at. And I think this section that you just walked through really makes our case. I mean, it really makes the case that this is, to the point you just made, this is not this some innocuous hashtag that everybody can embrace uh, as, as a virtue signal about the, about the importance of, of black lives. This is mm-hmm. about the overthrow of, of an entire system. It's, it's about the overthrow of complete structures. And, and this, it, again, I think you eloquently and effectively just made that case. Well, this section of commentary, again, it's important as, as important as it is to worldview. Uh, it's really important for us to get and understand. One of the questions that have got to be asked when we think about this worldview that seems to be permeating every facet of our culture, we have to ask a question. And the question is this, how is it possible in a culture founded on a Judeo-Christian worldview and, a, and capitalist principles, how, how does that culture find itself susceptible to such an ungodly, unbiblical, antithetical ideology? Mm-hmm. How, how, is, how, is that, how is that even possible? Uh, the answer to this very question is the reason why we do the podcast, is it not, brother? I mean, Amen, brother. If, if, if we don't teach the next generation the truth of Scripture, we lose that generation. 
Mm-hmm. After more than a hundred episodes of the Just Thinking podcast, I can recall our constant reminder that you've given numbers of times on our podcast that we, you and I have talked about in numerous interviews. We said that we want to unpack what scripture means, but more importantly, mm-hmm. we want to unpack what it means by what it says, right? We, we want to understand Amen. what scripture says, yep. but we also want to unpack what it means by what it says, Amen. And 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 it it's at this point in a culture that has that has grown fond of of exchanging in depth expositional preaching for topical TED talks, right? That's that's kind of what that's kind of what we've done. We've exchanged in depth yes. expositional preaching for topical TED talks. We have far too many believers who have grown accustomed to pragmatism rather than the power of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Add to this fact that secular educa- the secular educational system really is in cahoots with the ideas surrounding Marxism. This, this, the vast majority of believers and unbelievers alike have found themselves being educated in a secular public school system. It's built upon historic revisionism at its core. This revisionism has Christianity, uh, sees Christianity rather, as the white man's religion that is used only to enslave blacks and put them into bondage. I love what, what, what you quoted from what Frame said earlier. He said, and I quote, Christians were in the vanguard of abolishing the slave trade and slavery itself, also in the care of orphans and widows, improving education, encouraging science and art, end quote. When I thought about that, I, I reflected upon a, 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 the book by Thomas Sowell, which we've quoted a number of times in this particular episode. But in his book, Black Rednecks, White Liberals, he wrote this, and mm-hmm. I quote, quote, what, what, what was peculiar about the West was not that it participated in the worldwide evil of slavery, but that it later abolished that evil. Not only, not only in Western societies, but also in other societies subject to Western control or influence. This was possible only because the anti-slavery movement coincided with an era in which Western power and hegemony were, in, were at their zenith, so, so that it was essentially European imperialism which ended slavery. Let me repeat that because you don't hear that. Yeah, you, might, you, might, yeah, you need to repeat that, but you hear the exact opposite of what you, you have, just said. You hear said, the right? exact opposite. He, he said this in his book. He said, so it was essentially European imperialism which ended slavery. Continuing to quote from, from Sowell, he says, this idea might seem shocking, not because it does not fit the facts, but because it does not fit the prevailing vision of our time, end quote. Now, many know well the history of slavery in our country. Far too few know the story of many abolitionists and others who, who at, the, at the cost of some of their lives, actually went about eradicating slavery. Now, now ba- they did this on the basis of understanding the Christian worldview, and they were willing to risk their lives to end slavery, both in America and abroad. Now, Marxist ideology is formulated based upon the disdain and violation of the 10th commandment that thou shalt not covet. Marxism leverages this evil in the human heart for the purpose of creating chaos and for overthrowing government. And that, that's the point in the previous section that you just made. That's exactly what, what Marxism does. And so I, I, I want to end on that point, but, but I, I, think, I think, again, we've, we've definitely made the case. I know we've got more to go. Great thoughts, brother. You know, many of our listeners, Omaha, may be familiar with Karl Marx from his books, 
Das Kapital, which he published in 1867. Perhaps more famously, they're familiar with his Communist Manifesto, which he co-authored with the German philosopher and fellow communist Friedrich Engels in 1848. Now, in the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx said this, quote, when in the course of development, class distinctions have disappeared and all production has been concentrated in the hands of a vast association of the whole nation, the public power will lose its political character. Political power, properly so-called, is merely the organized power of one class for oppressing another, unquote. Now, in the book, The Dictators, Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Russia, author Richard Overy writes this, quote, Censorship in Germany differed from Soviet practice in one important respect. There was no attempt to reform artistic output since everything likely to be proscribed was, by definition, the product of, quote, cultural Bolshevism, unquote, or Jewish or alien. Cultural products were divided up into those that were acceptable and those that were not. Now, let me pause right here. Let me pause from quoting Richard Overy from his book, The Dictators. As you listen to me, listeners, listen to what I'm saying against the backdrop of what's happening with Antifa in places like Portland, mm. Seattle, mm -hmm. and other cities like that. Listen to mm -hmm. what I'm saying in quoting Richard Overy against the backdrop of what is currently happening uh, with respect to the uh, disruption of life that is being deliberately uh, embarked upon by Antifa supporters in certain cities. Let me start from the beginning. Quoting Richard Overy from his book, The Dictators, Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Russia. Quote, censorship in Germany differed from Soviet practice in one important respect. There was no attempt to reform artistic output since anything likely to be proscribed was, by definition, the product of, quote, cultural Bolshevism, unquote, or Jewish or alien. Cultural products were divided up into those that were acceptable and those that were not. The latter were banned or destroyed. In March 1933, Hermann Goebbels instructed the librarian Wolfgang Ehrmann to draw up a blacklist of Jewish Marxist and un-German literature. The list was sent to the student unions in German universities and high schools. It was the student activists. Again, let me pause. Just like in, Ger in, in Germany in 1933, as it is right now in Portland in 2020, it is the student activists. It is students from these liberal colleges and universities who are uh, at the center of the riots and violence uh, under the Antifa umbrella that we're seeing, especially in cities like Portland. Overy says the list was sent to the student unions in German universities and high schools. It was the student activists in the Deutsche Studentenschaft rather than the rival National Socialist Student League who declared a four-week program of cultural cleansing from April 12th to May 10th, which culminated 
with the mass burning of blacklisted books. Books were seized from university libraries and bookshops. Professors who protested were boycotted. On the final day of the program, huge bonfires were lit in Berlin, Munich, Breslau, Frankfurt, and Dresden, and crowds of students, SA men, and academic staff threw the offending literature into the flames, including the plays and poetry of Bertolt Brecht, which had, who had already left Germany for Austria in March of 1933. In the autumn, Brecht settled in Denmark, and it was here that he wrote the satirical poem, The Burning of the Books, for the writer Oscar Maria Graf, who did complain that he had been omitted from the first list of proscribed books drawn up in March 1933. Overy closes this passage with this. The first books, now they're burning books, they're burning unapproved books in Germany in 1933. The first books thrown onto the pyres were those of Karl Marx, unquote. Now, think about that for a moment, Omaha. Adolf Hitler had Karl Marx's books burned. <laughs> now, what does it say about a worldview that is espoused by the founders of Black Lives Matter that a man who was single-handedly responsible for the genocide of millions of Jews, millions of human beings, had books written by Karl Marx burned? Listen, the worldview of Karl Marx can be summed up this way. Karl Marx was an atheist. He also hated Jews. In a 2019 article for the website, now remember, I mentioned that because remember, Patrice Colours and Alicia Garza proudly confessed that we are, quote, trained Marxists, unquote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Karl Marx hated Jews. He was an atheist. In a 2019 article for the website jewishpress.com titled Karl Marx, a self-hating Jew, writer Saul J. Singer said this, quote, Although he is renowned as a champion of the working class, Marx was a freeloader who had little interest in work and was constantly in debt to moneylenders. Indeed, his mother once told him, quote, I wish you were more interested in accumulating capital instead of writing about it. Maybe then you could stop asking me for it, unquote. <laughs> His mother's refusal to finance her son's sloth ultimately led to their estrangement. Marx's lifelong poverty may have been a motivating factor in the development of both his political philosophy and anti-Semitism. In fact, many analysts persuasively argue that his anti-capitalist animus was grounded in his anti-Semitism, self-hatred, and belief that the root evil of capitalism is the exploitative Jews. Marx's anti-Semitic writings are legion. On holiday in Ramsgate in 1879, he wrote to Friedrich Engels that the resort contained, quote, many Jews and fleas, unquote. And in another letter to Engels, he described Ferdinand LaSalle, the Jewish founder of German socialism and Marx's political opponent as a, quote, Jewish nigger, unquote. Faced with this clear record of anti-Semitism, many apologists nonetheless contort themselves in some truly bizarre ways 
to sanitize what Marx has clearly written and to distort who he really was. Now, let me pause right there. Let me pause right there in quoting Saul J. Singer from his article, Karl Marx, a self-hating, <coughs> a self-hating Jew. When, when Singer says, faced with this clear record of anti-Semitism, many apologists nonetheless contort themselves in some truly bizarre ways to sanitize what Marx has clearly written and to distort who he really was. That's absolutely happening right now. That's happening right now. And it's happening within the church. Mm-hmm. You've got people, you've got well-known evangelical leaders within the church who will say on social media, one female, one well-known female, by the way, accused those who would call out this sort of thinking as Marxism, uh, called them out for name calling. Right. It's, it's as if as if this is just a simple sticks and stones kind of thing, uh, where we're just we're just throwing the throwing the Marxist label out there haphazardly. No, you have people right now within the evangelical church. Remember the quote I read earlier. <clears throat> Language on the Black Lives Matters website resembles this worldview, but it's out there obliquely. Okay, it's not overt. Okay, it's camouflaged. But you have people within the church right now who espouse this worldview, who admire Karl Marx and his worldview, though he was an atheist and anti-Semite. Okay, they're contorting themselves here to sanitize what Marx has clearly written and what he truly believed. All right, let me continue the quote from the article. Many argued that Marx was merely reflecting broad societal antipathy for Judaism in general and was thus merely expressing the commonplace thinking of his era that, quote, Jew, unquote, was a commonly used term for usurer and that Marx hated Christianity just as much as Judaism and there is, that there is no record of Marx engaging in anti-Semitic activities or joining or supporting anti-Semitic organizations, that these statements were merely reflections of his, quote, witty, unquote, and, quote, ironic, unquote, writing style, and that, quote, in spite of the clumsy phraseology and crude stereotyping, unquote, his purpose was to defend Jews and to extend full civil rights and political emancipation to them. However, the gestalt of Marx's writing, in terms of both his philosophy and his language, leaves little doubt that he was a self-hating Jewish anti-Semite, unquote. That was from Saul J. Singer's article, <coughs> excuse me, Karl Marx, a self-hating Jew. Hmm. Now, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the man whom at least two of the three founders of Black Lives Matter revere and whose worldview that organization's entire purpose is modeled after. Karl Marx viewed humanity in terms of classes. With Marx, class was everything. It was the haves versus the have-nots, the powerful versus the powerless, the oppressor versus the oppressed, us versus them. According to Karl Marx, the sole purpose of political power is for one class of people to oppress another. So when you understand Marx's worldview, you likewise can understand why the mission and objective of Black Lives Matter is so saturated with political language that emphasizes using the political and electoral process to ensure that power is both attained, obtained rather, and retained 
by individuals and groups that are favorable to its radical agenda. Listen, there is nothing on the Black Lives Matters website, okay? You will find nothing on the Black Lives Matters website about reducing violent crime in black neighborhoods, where 88% of the time where the homicide victim was black, so was the suspected killer. You will find nothing on their website about increasing the literacy rate among black children. For example, where you have 75% of black boys in California do not meet state reading standards. Nothing on the Black Lives Matter website about promoting the ethos that young black boys and girls should abstain from engaging in premarital sexual intercourse so as to reduce the nearly 250 unborn black babies who are murdered by abortion every day in this country. There's not a word on the Black Lives Matter website about promoting marriage so as to reduce the more than 70% of black children who are born to single mothers and the nearly 40% of black children under the age of 18 who, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, live in fatherless homes. None of that you will find on the Black Lives Matters website. But what you will find on the Black Lives Matter website is this, verbiage declaring their desire to, quote, disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure, unquote. That bullet right there, that point right there, that objective goes back to what I was quoting from Karl Marx earlier, who in his communist manifesto wants to, quote, abolish the family, unquote, unquote. Again, this is just another way where Black Lives Matters says the exact same thing that Karl Marx believed in. Only their wording is that they want to, quote, disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure, okay? What you'll also find on the Black Lives Matters website is their desire to, quote, foster a queer affirming network, unquote. You'll also find on their website a desire to, quote, dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women, unquote. You'll also find on their their website, quote, a desire where they desire freedom and justice for ourselves as a prerequisite for wanting the same for others. Now, b- before I turn it over to you, Omaha, I just want to ex- expand on that last bullet point there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Where Black Lives Matters on their website says they desire freedom and justice for ourselves as a prerequisite mm-hmm. for wanting the same for others. Now, earlier at the very top of this episode, I quoted from the Black Lives Matters website where they say they want justice for everybody. They want justice for everybody. But here they're contradicting themselves. They desire freedom and justice for themselves as a prerequisite. So their justice is conditional. When I get what I want, then I can get behind what you want. That's essentially what they're saying here. When they say they desire freedom and justice for ourselves as a prerequisite for wanting the same for others. Thoughts on that, Omaha? Lot of lot of content that you walk through there, and all of it's incredibly uh, important for us to know and and understand. Uh, again, I, I I'm sure I'm certain that those uh, of our detractors will will challenge uh, how much time we spend unpacking Marx and his ideology. Uh, I would much rather people do you know do the homework uh, that we've done walk through it so that they have more than just a name call more times than not uh you, you know daryl when when people get engaged in internet conversations debate on social media they throw a label out where they have no idea 
what the label actually means, right? The, 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 mm-hmm. the, the yep. label or the charge is an effort really to, to shut down dialogue. I think what you and I have demonstrated during the course of, of this particular podcast is that we're willing to interact with what Marx has stated and then, and then examine it against the backdrop of a biblical worldview. Exactly, and, 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 exactly. And, 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 and attach scripture to what we mean by what we say. We're going to define our terms. This is not ambiguity here. This is not, you know, we, we're not we're not trying to be be, be be kind of shaded about what we're meaning to say, kind of kind of cloaked and daggered and in and, and, and language like that. We want to be very clear about what we're saying. At the end of the day, this stuff matters. This is worth remembering. The very the very mm-hmm. things necessary. And this is really what you brought up during the course of this entire, uh, especially the back half of what you stated in the commentary. The very things that are necessary to promote family, to promote self-reliance, to promote value within the black community are the very things that Black Lives Matter efforts to absolutely destroy. Absolutely. Absolutely right, bro. That's exactly what disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. I got news for them. The, the, The nuclear family was prescribed in Scripture. Back in Genesis chapter three. Amen. Okay. Tell them, bro. And, Tell them. And so this this isn't this isn't something that showed up as a Johnny come lately afterthought here in the United States of America, and uh, in, in, in at the at the point at which which the, the the Mayflower landed on Plymouth Rock, right? This this is not that kind of a program. The 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 family has been an institution ordained by God from the very beginning. And at the point at which Black Lives Matter thinks that they're going to disrupt that, they've got another thing coming. They absolutely do. To foster a queer affirming network, to dismantle cisgender privilege. Again, we what we have are is not individuals created in the image of God. We have people groups established by categories that are separated and segregated for the purpose of creating anger and outrage and victimhood mm-hmm. so that so that emotion can be used to overturn structures and systems that is exactly what this is all about we need to be clear about that we need to be articulate about that and we need to be able to explain that to others with crystal clarity because it matters it absolutely matters brother there was some brilliant points you made you just gave me an excellent segue into where i want to go next which is I want to quote John MacArthur in his book, Think Biblically, Recovering a Christian Worldview. In that book, Pastor John MacArthur writes this, quote, The more one understands people's ideas, the better one can communicate the truth of Scripture and the gospel to them. That is why one learns about cults and religions and why missionaries try to understand the cultures in which they live. But not enough Christians put much effort into understanding the culture in which they live. New believers who come into the church bring their worldviews with them. Furthermore, those Christians already in the church who do not understand worldview issues will not realize when they are embracing non-Christian concepts. Now, I want to repeat that. Yeah, that's good. MacArthur says, those Christians already in the church who do not understand worldview issues will not realize when they are embracing non-Christian concepts. This is exactly why I got so, I'm still so befuddled and dumbfounded at how easily Mm -hmm. Christians within the church, Christians 
and and, and evangelicals and, and and those within the evangelical church so easily without even thinking adopted that hashtag black lives matter right just adopted it <clears throat> just adopted it totally ignorant totally naive of what about what's underlying that mm-hmm. what underlies that hand that hashtag people is an entire world view mm-hmm. so world view MacArthur is exactly right. He says, new believers who come into the church bring their worldviews with them. Furthermore, those Christians already in the church who do not understand worldview issues will not realize when they're embracing non-Christian concepts. Absolutely. MacArthur continues, Paul warned the Colossians not to allow themselves to be taken captive by philosophy. That's Colossians 2.8. Most Christians assume that the best way to prevent that is to avoid, this is to your point earlier, Omaha, about how on the Just Thinking podcast, we go to those sources uh, that don't align with Scripture. So it's to bring them into the conversation and shape a biblical construct around what those worldview, what those worldviews teach. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what MacArthur is saying here. He says most Christians assume that the best way to prevent that is to avoid learning anything contrary to what they believe. Well, see, we don't do that here on the Just Thinking Podcast. We tell you what other people believe. Absolutely. MacArthur says, but like it from their their own sources. Mm -hmm. Well, MacArthur says, but like it or not, worldview issues are all around, pressing in from the surrounding country. See, again, I'm sorry, but I have to stop here again. This, This really grieves my heart. That, the, that, that professing Christians don't understand the concept of worldview. They just do not understand it. Number one, they don't have a worldview themselves. They don't have a biblical worldview themselves. So is it any question that they're so susceptible to um, embracing unbiblical worldviews? They don't even know how to identify a worldview, how to recognize a worldview, let alone determine if it's godly or ungodly mm-hmm. MacArthur continues he says he says but like it or not worldview issues are all around pressing in from the surrounding culture instead of trying to completely shield oneself from culture Paul would advise a different approach understanding something about the ideas that intrude and learning to discern between the truth and error hello MacArthur is exactly right. listen That is why we do the Just Thinking podcast, to help you discern between truth and error. MacArthur closes with this. Western culture is undergoing sweeping and profound changes that are transforming the prevailing cultural worldview, especially with regard to the nature of truth, unquote. That was John MacArthur from his book, Think Biblically, Recovering a Christian worldview. Now, those words from John MacArthur summarize why we are doing this episode on Black Lives Matter. Because truth is at stake. Not just the truth, but truth in general. You know, one of the most misunderstood aspects of what it means for followers of Christ to hold to a biblical worldview is that we're never to make judgments. Okay? People say all the time, well, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. You know, one of the most misunderstood, and this might be the most misunderstood 
mistaught and misapplied verse in the entire Bible, and that is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. But the truth is, nothing could be further from the truth than that we are, not, that we are never to judge. By the way, just as an aside, okay, just as an aside, Omaha, the word judge in Matthew 7, 1 doesn't mean what most people think it means, okay? That word, the words judge and judged in Matthew 7, 1 are the same Greek word, the Greek word krino, krino, that's spelled K-R-I-N-O, which translated means simply to pronounce an opinion concerning what is right and wrong. Do you understand that now? That word does not mean what you thought it meant all these years. The word krino simply means to pronounce an opinion concerning what is right and wrong or wrong. The word krino does not mean to condemn, which is what most people mistakenly think the word judge means. That word does not mean to condemn. The word condemn is the Greek word katakrino, K-A-T-A-K-R-I-N-O. Katakrino, which means to judge someone as worthy of punishment or to pronounce a punishment upon someone. So in Matthew 7, 1, Jesus is not saying we are never to judge anything as being right or wrong. You better be making those judgments in your life. What Jesus is saying is that there, there in Matthew 7, 1, what Jesus is saying there is that we are not to pass sentence on someone because that is up to God. That is in Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 28. So Jesus is not saying again that you're not to have an opinion on, on whether something is right or wrong. Listen, uh, Omaha, you and I are both biblical counselors. Mm-hmm. How, how, how would, what would you think of me if I'm counseling a couple where, let's say, for instance, the wife has committed uh, sexual immorality outside the marriage, but, but, I, but I call it a, a discretion. I call it having an affair. And I don't call it adultery. I don't call it what it is. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not condemning her, but I'm judging her. Mm-hmm. I am judging. I'm judging that you're an adulterer. Right. I'm not condemning you for your adultery because that's not within my power to do. But that's just an example of how the church, for I don't know how many years, has taken Matthew 7, 1 and absolutely ripped it to exegetical shreds. <laughs> Have absolutely no, no hermeneutic whatsoever. Judge does not mean condemn. There are two different words, okay? In a sermon he preached on October 6, 1867, titled, a sharp knife for the vine branches. The 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, quote, there is a sense in which we are not to judge men, but there is another sense in which he would be an errant fool who did not constantly exercise his judgment upon men, unquote. Now consider Spurgeon's words in light of what Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 24. And this is where I always take someone, whenever one's, someone tries to, to, to throw that don't judge up, up, up in my face in Matthew 7, 1, I take them right to John 7, 24. This is Jesus speaking. John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Yep. In other words, do not crino, 
Okay. Do not draw a conclusion according to appearance. But crino, same Greek word as in Matthew 7, 1, is in John 7, 24. But crino, judge, discern with righteous judgment. Now, notwithstanding the unarguable fact that Black Lives Matter is nothing close to an ecclesiastical entity, the fact remains that the gospel of Jesus Christ calls the people of Christ to not show partiality of any kind or for any reason in situations that require us to make judgments or draw objective and discerning conclusions. Right. Now, as an organization, as an organization, Black Lives Matter is all about partiality, not to mention the fact that much of what that organization stands for is patently unbiblical, which sadly, though not surprisingly, doesn't seem to matter to many professing believers today, many of whom are regarded as leaders within large evangelical churches, organizations, and denominations who have tethered themselves either to Black Lives Matter, the organization, or to the phrase, quote, Black Lives Matter, unquote, which originated with that organization. Mm-hmm. While being totally naive, or perhaps in some cases, for the sake of popularity and celebrity, deliberately ignorant about the Marxist roots and the political objectives of that organization. But in 2 Corinthians 6.14, the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthian believers to not become partakers with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness, Paul asks? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Mm-hmm. In Ephesians 5.11, that I quoted at the very top of the episode, Believers are commanded to not participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead to expose them. What you see, Omaha, the evangelical church, particularly in America, has all but abandoned any concept of the biblical doctrine of spiritual light and darkness, of the reality of good and evil, of righteousness and lawlessness, so that many professing Christians today are simply afraid to make those distinctions. Mm-hmm. In other words, Even in the case of such an egregiously unbiblical entity as Black Lives Matter, they're afraid to discern between what is right and what is wrong. Despite the fact that God has given his people, he has not given his people a spirit of timidity. Despite that reality, we have become so fearful of what the world may think of us that we do everything we can to ingratiate and endear ourselves to a world that hates us. Right. We don't dare regard Black Lives Matter as unbiblical and their agenda as being antithetical to the gospel because, God forbid, the world might think we're unloving. (laughs) But here's the thing, Omaha. The world is supposed to hate us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why are we so afraid of what the world thinks of us when the world is not supposed to think, when the world is supposed to think that way about us? Why are believers trying to endear themselves to an unbelieving, God-rejecting world that is supposed to despise and reject us? Jesus said, it much, Jesus said as much in John 15, verses 18 and 19. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. That's John 15, 18 and 19. Now, the word hates there in John 15, verses 18 and 19, is the Greek verb meseo, 
Maseo, that's M-I-S-E-O, Maseo. It is a word that when translated literally means a detestable hatred that manifests itself in deliberate persecution. It means to pursue with an attitude of hatred. The hatred that the world has for believers in Christ is not merely a dislike of us, but it's a deep-seated disdain and hatred of who we are. Now, knowing this, I am dumbfounded that there are professing Christians today who continue to genuflect to the world and its values, such as in the case of Black Lives Matter, as if the words Jesus spoke in John 15, 18, and 19 had never been spoken. Right. Now, by the way, just as an aside, Omaha, I just want to say that in John 15, verse, verse 19, Jesus gives us an excellent definition of salvation. If you want a concise yet biblical definition of salvation, there it is in John 15, 19. Salvation is Christ choosing you out of the world. Mm-hmm. That is what salvation is very succinctly. Now, as we prepare to close out this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, I want to remind our listeners of the two passages I cited earlier in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and Ephesians 5, 11. God's people are not to become partners with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? We are not to participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but are instead to expose them. Now, it is against those two passages of Scripture that I want our listeners to consider these poignant words from A.W. Tozer from his book, Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. Tozer said this, quote, Christianity's scramble for popularity today is an unconscious acknowledgement of spiritual decline. Her eager fawning at the feet of the world's great is a grief to the Holy Spirit and an embarrassment to the sons of God. Saving truth is a rare treasure, and not many in any generation possess it. We are to bless the world, but are never, we are told, to compromise with it. Our glory lies in a spiritual withdrawal from all that builds on dust. The bee finds no honey while crawling around the hive. Honey is in the flower far away where there is quiet and peace and the sun and the flowing stream. There the bee must go to find it. The Christian will find slim pickings where professed believers play and pray all in one breath. He may be compelled sometimes to travel alone or at least to go with the ostracized few. To belong to the despised minority may be the price he must pay for power. But power is cheap at any price. Listen to this from Tozer as he closes. The question for the church is this. Shall we modify the truth in doctrine or practice? to gain more adherence or shall we preserve the truth in doctrine and practice and take the consequences <laughs> unquote i'm out bro what you got Omaha? yeah no i i think that last question is incredibly critical especially as aimed at 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 the evangelical church culture I, because at the end of the day we adopt this this philosophical craze of black lives matter and, and it is absolutely the end of, of those who call themselves churches. It is not the end of the church. 
The true church will always be. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But those who call themselves the church and, and adopt and embrace the, 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 all of what we've just walked through from a standpoint of the philosophy, the ideology um, that, that, that undergird Black Lives Matter, it, it, it's over. You, 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 you crack the door to this Trojan horse and, and it, it is over. It is absolutely over for Indeed. you. I'm, Indeed. I'm glad we did this episode. I'm glad we walked through this. I think it's going to I think it's going to serve uh, the people of God. Well, uh, I'm going to encourage you if you've listened and gotten all the, th- this far uh, to stop, pause, take a breath, grab a pad, grab a pen and go back through the episode. <laughs> I, I'm going to I'm going to encourage you to do that. Uh, this is one of those that will be a reference point for many who listen. And then what I'm going to ask you to do is, is to send it to someone else that you believe will benefit from from the from the work that that Daryl and I've walked through uh, in this particular episode. I'm, we're hopeful uh, that it blesses you, that you find it edifying. We're hopeful that all that we shared in this episode at the end of the day glorifies God because we intend to preserve the truth in doctrine and practice and take the consequences. That's that's exactly Amen. how we intend to roll. Amen. It's Amen, it's bro. with that it's with it's with that that I, I I'll encourage you to join us next time for the next edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. The Just Thinking Podcast, hosted by Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, is a Christ-centered, gospel-focused, and theologically challenging program that boldly and unapologetically addresses social, political, and cultural issues from a biblical worldview. With an international listenership that stretches from the United States and Canada to Romania, Nicaragua, and Mongolia, The Just Thinking Podcast breaks through all ethnic, geographic, social, and cultural barriers to bring the objective truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the issues confronting His church and His people. Subscribe to The Just Thinking Podcast using the podcast app on your Apple or Android smart device, or you can listen online at thebarpodcast.com slash JT.